Thank you, Carl. Um, also, I don't think there was a need to apologise and say that the, the opening reading was negative because there was negative stuff in there, wasn't there? But there was also encouragement in that. In the middle of it says, but those who endure to the end will be saved. So despite all of that stuff going on, there's that picture that there are some who will continue to endure in faith in God in the midst of that shows the surpassing greatness of, of knowing him. But also in the midst of that too, there was that, and the gospel shall go um, to all nations. So there's all good stuff in there. Um, so good stuff happens in the middle of difficult stuff. God is always working out his good purposes. Another thing I just want to say away is sort of introductory stuff. Um, during the week, early in the part of the week, I was at the National Conference for the FICA, the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches of Australia that uh, Eastgate belongs to. Um, and it's just a wonderful time. Like I've, you know, I was involved in another denomination when we were down in Victoria. And those meetings were always kind of a little bit weird because you was foolish to presume that anyone was on roughly the same page as you in those meetings. But when we kept together with their fellow um, FICA ministers, um, there's no there's no pride, there's no um, sort of ego trips. There's just a group of people who who are interested and involved in gospel ministry, um, and just just love that rich fellowship that we had had together. Um, I suppose something that might encourage you to hear is that there was one new church that was added um, officially added in this year. Um, it's a church plant out at St George of all places, a church called Bush Disciples, a guy who. Um, was previously a minister of a denominational church but um, had a real heart for St George and the greater area and his initial plan was just 150k radius around there he was going to plant churches um, and so on every Sunday morning he's preaching St George in a primary school and every three out of the four Sunday mornings of the week he does an evening service at a remote town possibly up to 100 kilometres around um, so yeah it's encouraging to uh, to hear of that and hopefully sometime we might even be able to get Michael to um, come out and and share with us. I think it'd be nice to see something bigger of the larger Fika family. But there you go. There's there's a little update. But if you're ever travelling around and you um, if you look up the website, um, I've not come across anyone in my interactions that I wouldn't wholeheartedly commend going to their churches. There's plenty around Brisbane, uh, but there's they're all around the country. And Sarah and I are about to head down oh, in a week's time to my parents in Barrel, New South Wales, and we'll check out. One of the local ones there too. Okay. We whoops, a bit early. <laughs> Didn't see that. Secret. Let's open in prayer as we continue in the book of Exodus. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that it was your plan that your spirit would guide people to record the events in history and how you have intervened in, in our world. Lord, even as we look at things uh, in history that are in ways in which you've been involved well before the time of Jesus Christ, uh, they are not just things to think that they belong to the Israelites. Lord, there are things that you uh, have for us that, that all scripture is profitable and useful for us. Lord, we pray that we might um, see your good purposes for us through this passage in Exodus. Lord, we want you to, to teach us personally this morning. Keep me from saying things that are unhelpful 
or untrue. But help us to see you and your call and how we are to respond to you in faith. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Remember the old saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Everyone seems to know at least one person in their really wide sphere of friends who just seem to have connections to people in high places. Uh, Whether you're interested in musically sort of stuff, there's that person who just happens to know all the people that gets you the backstage sort of access. Or maybe it might be in a sporting environment. There's someone who has sort of access, gets you free corporate box tickets or whatever else it might be, or backstage sort of stuff. As a young little kid, my closest was, and this is showing how old I am, everyone's kind of looking at never seen this, Blake. Um, Kerry Bosted, who was part of the Queensland State of Origin team, I was a manly supporter. I'll admit that. There's my scene that's out in the open. Um, and I had a bit of correspondence back and forth. And one day he invited me to come down uh, to the change rooms after the game, which was exciting one half, but as a very young little kid to go to a men's footy change rooms thing was also a little confronting at the same time. But when you think about it, every single person at those events still sees the people and they see the people doing primarily what they're most well known for. Everyone sees the football game, everyone sees the concert. But if you want to know personally and get to know the people, you need someone who's going to provide you with that special access. Now, the Israelites so far have seen much of the work of God firsthand. And now as we come to Exodus chapter 9, it's almost like now they're not just going to see the works of their God, now they have come to meet the God who has saved them. As background, they've been in Egypt for 430 years, been treated ruthlessly as slaves, not to be thought of as being a surprise or or something where God was out of control. We've repeated several times when you go back to Genesis 15 where the covenant is there being made with Abraham, it was actually foretold that they would go into the hands of a foreign leader. They'd be there for 400 years. But in the middle of that too, I suppose much like the beforehand talking uh, back Carl's content from Matthew 24, in the middle of the bad news there was a good news. And God had promised even back in Genesis 15 to Abraham that not only would they be in this foreign land but that he would deliver them personally out of that land god has displayed his wonderful works in egypt not only have the people of israel seen them the egyptians have seen them god has made specific claims that you will see by seeing these things you will know that i am the lord they've seen all the signs and wonders he did all of the plagues how he delivered them under the the oppression of the egyptian rule brought them out of slavery, not just brought them out of slavery, did in such a miraculous way there was no doubt about who had done it. As the presence of God was there, as the the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night, to open up the Red Sea when there was even a simpler way that didn't need to, but for the display of God's glory. Moses' first encounter with God was on this very mountain, Mount Sinai, sometimes called the Mountain of God or Mount Horeb. He was told this, and it's no surprise we find ourselves back here again in chapter 19. He was told, this is God speaking, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. 
When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So it's no surprise that God who called Moses and said, you're coming back here after I deliver you out of Egypt, that this is exactly where they find themselves. And last week we were reminded that all of God's saving acts are never just a saving from something. There's always a saving from and a saving to. Like in this particular occasion, he's promised to Moses, I will save you out of Egypt. You will be my people. You will serve me. You will worship me on this mountain. As we look through Exodus 19, we see a fair lot of covenant language. Are we to think that God's introducing some new covenant, a different one than what's been spoken beforehand? One thing that's worth keeping in mind is what was it that we see in Exodus that was God's prompt to act and to save and to deliver a people out of Egypt? Remember when we went back to chapter 2? During those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out to God for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So God makes this very close connection between his previous covenant to Abraham as being the motive why the exodus took place. We'll see that what is about to come isn't so much a different covenant, but rather a fuller picture of the promises that have already been made, which then goes on to a bigger picture in the fuller expression of that in the coming of Jesus Christ and his work, and then the complete consummation of all of that at the end of all time. So as we're looking at a structure of where we're headed today, firstly in verses 1 to 9a, everyone asks about this A-B stuff. That's just when people just decide that the verses got too harsh to it so they just pick for themselves uh, where it is so don't expect to find an A or a B in your Bible. Um, Living as God's people. Secondly, preparing to meet a saviour in 9b to 15. Trembling in the Lord's presence in verse 16 to 20 and access to God. So we find ourselves, as we go into Exodus 19, three months on from the time that they have gone out of Egypt, where God has miraculously saved them out of their slavery, just as God has promised that they would come again to Mount Sinai. The people again are encamped around the base, and just as Moses had heard before, God called his voice, calling him up the mountain. Up until now, the people of Israel have heard so much about the nature and character of God. They've seen wonderful displays that they know something of his nature, his nature to save, his nature to sustain them. As they've wandered around in the wilderness for these three months, even amongst their complaints, they had no food, they had no water. God sustained and provided for them on a daily basis. He provided for them when they came into war against the Amalekites. And he sets their eyes and focuses and reminds them of who he is and what he has done. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' winds and brought you to myself. Now that picture of an, an eagle is, I suppose you think of the vulture side of things, but there's also, the, used in the Bible, particularly in Deuteronomy 32, this idea of the, the eagle and their care for the young. The way that they actually have their little chicks, I don't know what you call them, chicks, babies, 
little birdies. Anyone knows bird terminology for baby eagles? No, drawing blanks, there's your homework for the week. Uh, But they're in there for 100 days, which is apparently longer than any other bird. But in that process, they would flick their little babies out of there when they thought they should be ready to go. They're like God plucking the people out of Egypt. But then if they were struggling, they would swoop down, gather them up and try again. Just as God has taken the people out of Egypt and despite all their questioning and doubts along the way, he has carried them, he has supported them. This is their God as he has revealed himself to them. In all of these actions that God has done towards the people, there's one thing that cannot be said, that God has not been faithful to his end of the deal of the covenant. He's reminded them throughout the whole time of his faithfulness to the covenant. We saw right in the very early chapters when here the pharaohs were trying to to wipe them out as a nation, particularly to prevent them growing as a nation and for the, the male boys to be killed. But God had promised that he would make the descendants of Abraham multitude, more numerous than the numbers the stars of the sky. He promised to, to Jacob himself, don't be afraid to go down there because I will make you into a great nation in Egypt. But now the focus comes down to the people. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the people, for all the earth is mine. So God has made covenant. He's been faithful. Now he turns to the people, says, you, as part of this covenant, are required to be faithful and obedient. Now there should be some degree of caution taken when how we read this verse. Because you could be tempted to read it on kind of a casual reading and think, aha, Old Testament days, eh? It appears that as long as they do the right thing, as long as they do things, they're obedient, they do the commands, that somehow they become saved as a result of working for such things. But that type of an idea is actually foreign to Exodus. After all, at this point in time, they have been redeemed, they've been delivered out of Egypt, haven't they? And if you look at just the verse beforehand, verse 4, wherein God says, remember how I brought you out of Egypt and I called you to myself. Not you came to me. I called you to myself. Now that doesn't mean there's a disconnection between being saved and behaviour and requirements to live in a particular way. He's saying, because you are a redeemed people, live in accordance to who you are. Because you are my covenant people, this is what is required. It's not by doing these things that made them saved or somehow keeps them saved. It's not, just, it's not a New Testament concept to be saved by grace alone. In fact, Romans 4 picks up a, on that very same thing that goes back to the example of Abraham. Abraham wasn't saved by his works. Abraham was saved because he believed God and that was credited to him as righteousness. The New Testament picks up on this same type of Connection too between being a saved people and what is required of us living in light of that. Like Paul in four separate letters in slightly different wording says, we live in a manner either worthy of the gospel or worthy of the Lord is his word. Ephesians 4 being a prime example of that because it's a book where the first three chapters are describing who we are in Christ, what Christ has done. 
And chapters 4 to 6, there's a transition where it talks, now in light of who you are, this is how you are to live. And that very first verse, chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians says, now I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that is the sort of the, the foundations he builds on as he goes on to talk about how we are to live as God's people. But not only has God brought a people to himself, he speaks of three benefits or blessings that come and are associated with covenant faithfulness. The first is, says, you will be my treasured possession. Now, rightly, he comes out in the, in the context where he says, the whole earth is mine. So Israel, it's not to say the Israelites were specifically the only people who were gods. God is the creator of all things, therefore the owner and rightful ruler of all things. But he says, I have chosen to set my affections upon you. You are my treasured possession. It's a term that was used of the the most precious things that a king or someone in royalty had within their possession. And that's the way he speaks of these guys. And we've seen them. They're not the best. They're not exactly the perfect example, are they? Like they've seen all these mighty things of God that we would long to see something like that in our days. Yet it didn't take very long before they're whinging and complaining about God, saying we were better off back in Egypt when God would have killed us there. Accusing God of not providing for them. Accusing God of bringing them out to the desert to die and not caring for them. Yet these people, not because of anything particularly wonderful about them, God has chosen to set his affections upon them and describes them as his treasured possession. Also, he refers to them being a royal priesthood. Now, the concept of priesthood doesn't come till Exodus chapter 29, but he says, as a nation, you have a function in a way like a priesthood. And what does a priest do? A priest represents God to people. So it's not just that we call them to be a treasured people, that they're just the specials and that's all what it's all about. But him setting his affection upon them and choosing them was for the display of his nature through them. Like Isaiah 49 and 42, verse 6 in both of those chapters, says, I have called you to be a light to the Gentiles. To be part of God's chosen instruments, to be a revelation of his character to a people who don't know him. And thirdly, to be a holy nation. Not just set apart in the sense of being isolated from everyone else, because that's foreign to the idea of being a light to, to the nations. But being set apart in terms of being distinct, being different than the others, belonging exclusively for the purposes and the plans of God. So the treasured possession, a royal priesthood to make God known in a unique relationship with him. That's a pretty good sign of grace, isn't it? When we remember what these people are like and some of the claims they've made about God in, in this very short period of time. Wouldn't it be good if God said something like that about us? Well, he did. Because Peter picks up on this exact quote in 1 Timothy 2.9. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Hey, that, that same thing, that he has chosen to set his affection upon us. He has chosen us, he considers us treasured possessions that we might proclaim the excellences of him 
who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. I couldn't help but have a little chuck when, I don't know if it was through reading the passage when, when Carl made, said in prayer he wants to talk about holiness and mission because if you hadn't read the passage then um, it's certainly in this passage. So God goes down and speaks to the elders of all the things they're told to do as God has told him to and the elders respond say all the Lord has spoken we will do. That's that's pretty all thumbs up. Everything's looking good, isn't it? When they've seen something of the wonder of their God, this sounds wonderful. When I see who he is, everything he says, I'm all for it. Remember those moments of enthusiasm had, particularly when we first first came to faith? We were so excited, no matter what God says, I will go, I'll do it. Unfortunately for the Israelites, who said a number of times, particularly throughout the times of the giving of the law, where they say, whatever he says, we'll do it. How quickly they lose sight of what it actually means to do everything that he would say. I think there was a time when they kind of had a good, clear picture of who he was, how worthy he was to be responded to in this way. And in that setting, it was easy to say, yeah, whatever he says, it makes sense, we'll do it. But when you take your eyes off God and you start to have a smaller picture of who your God is, how easily we wander in thought and the result is that we don't live up to that. We'll do everything he calls us to do. That's one reason why I ask today, we need to keep our eyes focused on him. We can't afford to wander away and think, oh, I'm reading the Bible prayer. Nah, not important. We need to see him. We need to see him, see his worthiness that we respond to him in worthiness. But now God's coming down to Mount Zion. And it says, and all will hear his voice. So it's not just Moses who hears um, what's going on here. But you start to wonder, how's this going to work? A perfectly holy God coming down to dwell amongst a rebellious and sinful people. So we look from 9 to 15, preparing to meet the Saviour. There's two words that get spoken often of God. One is transcendent meaning his otherness, meaning his being infinitely loftier, holier, more powerful, so very other and different than, than all of creation. But then there's the another word which is imminent, which speaks of his, his nearness and his closeness and his intimacy and involvement in things in the world. And God is both of these things. But whenever we emphasise one at the expense of the other, we always come to a wrong picture of God and also have a wrong response to God. When all of the focus is on his transcendence and his otherness, he becomes a God who is so so distant and so uninvolved, so uncaring and so harsh. When all our focus is on his imminence, as his, his closeness and his nearness and his stooping down to us, then he becomes that little bit too familiar where he's kind of like the cute cuddly guy in the sky who loves us no matter what we do. as though we kind of make him into an image that fits our mould. But he is both. It is right to picture him as being totally other than all that we are, totally, infinitely, wholly above anything we could ever imagine, the most godliest person we could ever imagine. With no no time for, for sin, the, the scriptures tell us his eyes are too pure to even look on any impurity and sin. But he is also a God who cares deeply about his creation. 
who is intimately involved in the lives of his people. As we think about him coming down to Mount Sinai, I'm reminded back to the Garden of Eden. There, Adam and Eve, they're there. They've got the presence of God there dwelling in their midst. And after the fall, they're banished from the garden. Sin by its nature separates us from that closeness and intimacy with the presence of God, which has been passed down through every single one of us uh, through Adam. So in preparing for God's arrival, there are two things which happen. God's told to go, sorry, Moses is told to consecrate the people, have them wash their clothes over a period of three days. Now, there's not too much details given as to what that looked like, but as you look through sort of further on into the Old Testament, see it becomes part of regular priestly rituals, some of the rituals they do. The priest has to wash their clothes as a sign of their uncleanness and their impurity for coming before a perfect and a holy God. Whereas the nature of the consecration, there's no details given as to how that took place. The only possible hint we might have is going back to chapter 13 when it talked about the consecration of the firstborn uh, and the sacrifice. So potentially maybe there was a a sacrifice um, was made in preparing uh, for the holy God to come down in their midst. But the actual details, we don't get told specifically what happened. But when you think about it, this is a people that God says, my treasured possession, that he has loved them, he has saved them, he's brought them out of Egypt. But even still, there is a very infinite distance between a perfect and a holy God and the created people. And that's emphasised over and over again in this chapter. The number of times that God reminds the people through Moses, you can't even step onto this mountain, it is so holy, lest you be consumed in my holiness. I think at times the church of today really needs to recapture the concept of God and his holiness. Rather than him just being some familiar anything go, to have that sense of awe of who he is. It was very clear to these people as they see all the signs and wonders that accompany his arrival to be told he can't even get onto the mountain because God's presence is there on the top. Whereas we seem to have an attitude of things are just good enough. But in all of these things they see, you've got the lightning, the thunder, you've got the sounding of the trumpets, which is not only seen throughout the scriptures culturally being the welcoming of a king, but Zechariah 9, Matthew 24, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, all that sign of the, the trumpets accompanying the Christ and his return as well. But even beyond that, it says, and don't go near a woman. Now, this isn't some ancient biblical girls have got cooties type of thing. Um, it doesn't actually give a reason as to why, but the only connection I could potentially make is like in 1 Corinthians 7 when it talks about husbands and wives, do not deprive yourself except for a time of fasting and prayer. So I think just in the, the, the nature of the occasion to, for focus on God to, to abstain from sexual relations at times seems to be the case. But there's no doubt that they know that something major is happening in their midst. All of this preparation, there's a very real awareness of the otherness of this God who has come down to them. There's no doubt that they're not thinking, that they're thinking that you can't just casually just stroll up and say, G'day God, how are you going? 
So we're looking at verses 16 and 20, trembling in the Lord's presence. There's been so many reminders of his holiness and the need to be prepared. But look at some of the signs that accompany his arrival. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain and the very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. When it says all the people in the camp trembled, that includes Moses and Aaron, who've already had some degree of access to God. But even still, the nature of his presence coming down, dwelling amongst the people, they all trembled. They understood his complete otherness, even though he was the God who loved them and had saved them. The people were camped around at the base. And Moses is the one who's gone out. And we see something by way of God's nearness and otherness in verse 17. Moses says, come and meet God. But their meeting of God is from the foot of the mountain, not from the top of the mountain. We're told in the scriptures, no one can look upon God and live. I reckon if you were there, you probably wouldn't forget this. You've got the lightning, the thunder, the, the cloud resting on there, the constant mind, you can't even go on this mountain. Later there's, there's talk of, of fire and even the mountain shaking. You're going to remember it. They're going to know that there's something about this God. Some of the images that are used here, John picks up in Revelation 4 and 8, talking about the presence of God in his throne in lightning, fire and earthquakes. They know without doubt there is something awesome and something completely other, something um, that they are so unworthy of coming into their presence. But as Moses gets called up in front of the people to this awesome God, they also have a very clear sign of this is God's man, we are to listen to him. But I wonder about poor old Moses, and as we look to access to God in verses 21 to 25, Remember, he was 80 years old when he first came before Pharaoh. And God's got him going up and down the mountain. I don't know how big this particular mountain is, but he's up and down. He's hiking pretty good. Like when I'm 80, I'm probably not going to be going up and down mountains too much. Rhonda might be, but I mightn't be. (laughs) He's going up, get something, bring it down to the people, remind him again, don't come on the mountain unless I consume you. It's been very, very clear. God's holiness and their sense of unworthiness. But these constant reminders is also a sign of God's care. God's care that he actually warns them enough to say, don't do this. We see it repeated throughout the Old Testament. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God warns them, don't come into my holiness. I don't want to act this way, but by nature my holiness cannot stand unholiness in my presence. But this final time, not only does Moses go up, but also Aaron goes up. Now Moses and Aaron have done a fair bit um, coming up through the book of Exodus so far. But potentially this idea in the sight of the people, preparing for the arrival of the priesthood, the Aaron would be uh, appointed as a priest. And eventually the picture of the tabernacle, because eventually it will be the descendants of Aaron who will have that privilege of once a year going into the Holy of Holies where the presence of the Lord was on the Day of Atonement. 
But what's abundantly clear, even the holiest of humans cannot come in to the very presence of God. That is such as the nature and disconnect of our sinful nature and the perfect holiness of our God. And God warns very clearly the dangers coming before him, standing in your sin. Now, when I was at Bible college, people thought I was weird, well, for lots of reasons, really, but the one I'm about to tell you is that the two books I enjoyed reading the most while I was at Bible college was Leviticus and Numbers. And no, I haven't inflicted a a Leviticus sermon series on anybody yet. But the reason why I love them is when you read through it, you find all this stuff and you go, man, that just seems really, really excessive. That just seems to be going too far, too much. And you cannot read that book without having a very deep sense of the holiness and the perfection of God. That some things that might just seem so minor and trivial to us that had to be dealt with. So something of who he was and also something very much of who I was not. We live at times when there's often a presumption that God doesn't really care too much about if I do this, don't do this. Or God's, God's full of grace. You know, the more, the more sin, sin abounded, more grace abounded. Therefore, more sin must be a good thing because it makes more grace. Uh, Romans 6 says to that, no, may that never be the case. But I know so many people who have no desire for God whatsoever in this life, don't claim to be Christian. If you ask them, what's going to happen to you when you die? They say, I'm going to go be with God. How can you honestly read through the Bible and think that somehow living with total disregard for God, that somehow that you can just casually stroll up and be in his presence when you die? Like even we see some very godly people who mistakenly come into the presence of God or in a way that they shouldn't in the scriptures and they die. The Israelites are right to tremble that God is in their midst. Not because they, they've got a, a fear of, does God not care for us? They know, they've seen God's care for them. But also a sense of awe and wonder in his holiness, in his presence amongst an unholy people. But fairly, we're not Israelites 3,000 years ago. We're not meeting at Mount Sinai. But the passage isn't lost on us either because the writer of Hebrews makes a connection between these events and us. Reading from chapter 12. For you have not come to what it may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So again, Moses himself trembled at this thing that we're talking about in Exodus 19. Then he turns to to us, to the church. But you have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, but the heavenly Jerusalem to the innumerable angels in festival gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. So he makes the contrast. The Israelites were there at the base of the mountain. They couldn't even go past the base. 
But then he points and says, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. No talk of perimeters anymore because we have one who by nature, who is the perfect high priest, can take us into the very presence of God. Because rather than just being a a ritual of washing clothes or consecration by whatever method that Moses did for for the Israelites, we have a high priest who is not just done some things to remind us that we're unclean, but who has actually dealt with decisively our sin that had separated us from God. And through Christ's death and through faith in him, we're told we have the righteousness of Christ. And directly after these verses, still in Hebrews 12, it goes on to say this, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for keeping a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God had given repeated warnings to the Israelites in Exodus 19, and throughout the New Testament we were given repeated reminders, there is coming a time when all of the created order will pass away. Yet God speaks of himself as one who waits patiently, desiring that all would repent and come to him in faith. And he's lovingly done everything to provide us access. We've heard the warnings of what it means to stand before God in our sin. John 3, 36, we're told that all who believe in him have eternal life, but all who will not obey him will not see life because the wrath of God remains on him. There's a time coming when all creation will come to an end. When all of us will have to stand before our creator to give an account. And it will either be a day of fear where we stand before him with our sins and nothing else to, to offer. And there will be that very real fear and trembling and knowing the awesome awe of being in the presence of his perfection and his holiness and his complete disdain towards all sin and the consequences that are there within. Or it is going to be a day that we long for and look forward to. And we can stand before him, not with fear like the Israelites before the, the mountain in Exodus 19, but stand before him in confidence, not because of a righteousness of our own, but of a righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ by faith in him, by him dealing with the consequences of our sin that separated us from him. And through faith in him, we receive his righteousness and we stand before that throne on that day uh, with no other confidence but the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we give thanks that Jesus stood in our place and he was our substitute. But the thing is, nobody knows when that's going to be despite the fact there seems to be some new trend going on, talking about September 23rd being the end of the world. I'll tell you what now, I'm planning on still preparing a sermon for next Sunday, so, so, so if we get it, then 
then they were wrong, and what a surprise, they probably will be like everyone else before them. But if in hearing these things, and there's something within your conscience that says, I have not got right with God, and I know that this is the time of salvation, do not harden your hearts. The Bible tells us that all of us know that there's something by way, that there is a God of infinite power. It's deeply ingrained to us. But we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. If there's something within you that says, I need to get right with God, then make sure you speak to someone um, about how that is possible this morning. But there's also a reminder for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ who is the mediator of a new covenant, the one that was foretold in the book of Jeremiah. Just as he said to the Israelites here, this is who you are, therefore this is how you are to live. In light of who we are, we are a treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a light to the nations. People chosen for himself. We need to live as a people who are called to be in, in relationship with God, to be the display of his glory. And the people might look upon our lives and see something of the glory of our God. Something I was thinking of during the week. You know that old, that old cliche, you might be the only Bible or the only Jesus that anyone ever meets? And what got me thinking about that expression was this. I think most people, particularly in Western cultures, will own a Bible in their house, whether it's gathering dust up on a shelf or if it's bunging up the spare bed. Um, most people have a Bible. And as Christians, that really concerns us that they have the Bible that is able to make us wise to salvation, to point us to what Jesus has done, and people don't read it. It's a closed book gathering dust. Yet when people use that expression, you might be the only Bible that somebody else sees means that by our nature, because we are called to be a royal priesthood, we are called to represent God to a people, we are called to show, display something of the glory and wonder of God. If we are the only Bible someone's going to see, do they see people walking around as a dusty, closed, old Bible, gathering dust or banging up a spare bed? Or does, by our nature, of our response, living as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, amongst a life world of people who do not know God, do they see God in our lives and do we take our covenant responsibilities seriously? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is always helpful to be reminded of your perfect holiness. It shows us how desperately we, we need you but also how desperately thankful we are for what Jesus has done, knowing that there's absolutely no person who through their own goodness and own merits could ever come into your presence. But Jesus um, took our punishment for our sin, and as we rightly understand that we were created to be in relationship with you, to live under your rule, yet we have by nature rebelled, we give you thanks that you have provided a way of dealing with that sin. But as we repent and say we're sorry that we haven't lived as you as our rightful master, and as we come to faith, then uh, we, we turn and we, and we choose to live as you, you, you as our master. 
needing your help every step along the way, knowing that we can't live this new life without the enabling of your spirit. Uh, Help us to live lives worthy of the gospel. May by the way that we live, the, uh, the things that we do, be a demonstration of a people who are called to God to be on mission for God, as as Carl has also reminded us earlier as well. Uh, Thank you for uh, the value you have placed upon us. We we know our own weakness, we know our own struggles, we know our own failures, and so often we we think uh, how much you must think so little of us. Yet you have called us a treasured possession. Help us to remember who you have called us to be and may we be able to give you thanks in those times when we don't feel like we deserve it. May we even be able to give you thanks and say, I thank you, God, that you died for this thing that I've just done. Thank you for your care for us. May others come to know the wonderful good news through your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That's the Bible passage for next week. If you're someone who likes to read in advance... Uh, also, uh, we're about to stand and sing a song, um, but because we're having communion this week, uh, we've kind of rearranged how we're doing this on communion week. So uh, parents, go collect your children. Also remind the Christ leaders that to come back in because we will, after the first song, uh, be gathering together and sharing in communion together.